Welcome to Present Value. Jack Moriarty here, producer at Present Value. I'm delighted to bring you a conversation between James Feld and Dean Lynn Perry Wooten of the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. The conversation is a deep dive into concepts in organizational behavior, diversity management, and crisis leadership, with plenty of real-world examples along the way. Without further ado, here's Dean Lynn Perry Wooten and James Feld. We're excited to have Dean Lynn Perry Wooten in the studio with us today. She is the David J. Nolan Dean and Professor of Management and Organizations of Cornell University's Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management. Dean Wooden joined Cornell from the University of Michigan, where she served as Senior Associate Dean for Academic and Student Excellence, as well as Clinical Professor of Strategy, Management, and Organizations at Michigan's Ross School of Business. She received a BS from North Carolina A&T State University, an MBA from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, and a PhD in Business Administration from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Dean Wooden has taught such courses as corporate strategy, knowledge management, organizational behavior, and consulting. Her research interests include crisis leadership, positive organizing routines, strategic human resource management, and workforce diversity and competitive advantage. Dean Wooden, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So I'm looking forward to speaking with you today about your research, and I'd like to begin by talking more with you about your research in crisis leadership. So to start, can you elaborate more on what constitutes a crisis? So that's a great question. When you think about business education, so little time prepares people for crisis. And so what is a crisis? When my co-author and I conceptualize crisis, it's an unusual event. It's something that doesn't happen often. And it's going to have negative impacts on the organization's reputation or performance if it is not addressed in an effective and timely manner. So it's a shock to the system that has a great impact. Your research on crisis management focuses on specific competencies leaders need to possess to successfully navigate a crisis. Can you elaborate on what those competencies are? It's a great point. The classic textbook description of crisis leadership is about the communication PR plan. And my model is a little bit more complex. It goes from crisis management to crisis leadership. So I'm not saying that leaders need to throw out the PR and communicate. In fact, I'll say communicate, communicate, communicate. But the model that we've developed says, first, one, you have to understand what the crisis is. So that's scanning the environment, looking for the root cause. You then really do need to come up with a communication plan. But just as important as your communication plan are a set of actions. How are you going to be proactive in resolving that crisis? And not only resolving the crisis, but also learning from it so that you prevent the next crisis. So resilience is a very important attribute. In summary, then, the management part is identifying the problem, communicating it. But the real leadership part is taking charge, having a set of actions to resolve the crisis, and the organization learning from it so it's better off. I really find it interesting to see how organizations handle crises and how the crisis can serve as a learning opportunity to strengthen the organization and build resiliency. Can you provide an example of an organization that weathered a crisis and ended up coming out stronger as a result? 
You know, that's a great question. Um, You see crises every day in the news, and it really does take kind of this longitudinal analysis to predict how successful it's going to be. One of the ones that I've been seeing how it's going to unfold was the food contamination crisis that Chipotle had. And it's still a work in progress. But if you think about Chipotle and what it's done since that crisis is one, um, it did a great root cross analysis of saying, okay, why are we experiencing food contamination in our stores? And then it built a learning organization on its whole ecosystem of franchisers, suppliers, advertisement and marketing, safety equipment, thinking about how do we present those crises and making a statement about it. So it was a dual communication plan and this learning community to really end food contamination in its doors. So Chipotle is a current example that I like to share. On the flip side, is there an organization that comes to mind that experienced a crisis, didn't address it effectively, and came out worse for the wear? Let me think about that one. Um, many of those organizations, especially when you see smoldering crisis, you see organizations that the crisis builds up over time, and it's interesting to understand how it's going to unfold. Currently, I've been following, we don't have the results yet, is the Boeing crisis. And if you look at the news in the last couple of weeks, it's been talking about how Boeing was racing to be innovative and to meet its customer demands, and it may have taken a couple shortcuts. And so this is going to be an opportunity, one, to say, okay, is this true or not? And if it's not true, then Boeing is going to have to ask itself, okay, how do I create a communication strategy? And if it is true, then how do I resolve it so that behavior is not repeated again? With the rise of social media and the immediacy of the 24-hour news cycle, how has that impacted how executives respond to crises? That is a fabulous question. I've been studying crisis almost more than two decades now. And so when I first started studying crisis, the hot news media was 24-hour news. And you think of CNN and headline news. Now news is all around you and people get it not only on TV and radio, but social media. And one example I think is an excellent example of using multiple media to handle the crisis is how when Emory University's healthcare system was going to get a Ebola patient. And they were really an exemplar example of using social media and the news to communicate. And so you can imagine a university ecosystem that's going to get a Ebola patient. So not only the healthcare providers, the patients in the hospital, but also it's a university with students, it's faculty, it's staff, it's the city of Atlanta, it's the CDC all there. And what Emory did was their communication strategy used as many um, channels as you can say. One, it did newspaper articles. It did newspaper shows. It reached out on the various social media channels that the university owned. And it also sent letters to key stakeholders. And because of this communication strategy, people had confidence that Emory was going to create a safe environment and quarantine the Ebola patient and actually go and heal the person. So that's an example now where you can't just think communication, but you have to think the various channels and the messaging are are important and the timeliness. In an instant society, once the crisis hits, you need your team to be on it and thinking about where are my stakeholders and what are the various channels to communicate to them. As you mentioned, many of these crises can only be fully analyzed longitudinally. But as an expert in crisis management, what are some initial attributes to a response that make you think the organization, they're on the right track, and vice versa, actions that illustrate the opposite, where you're seeing worrying signs from an organization's initial response? 
So I'm going to start with the opposite ones this time. When I immediately see denial or I see that people don't have data or understand what's going on, that's a bad sign there. When the leader is not showing compassion or caring, especially if stakeholders are impacted by the crisis, and when there's no vision for an action plan to resolve a crisis, those are all the things I'm looking for. So in summary, I'm looking at press releases. I'm saying the leader sounds clueless. They sound incompetent. They haven't done a good job of building trust. Those are all examples of I've seen it. And so you think about when there was the oil spill in the Gulf and the leader said, you know, I'm tired. I've been working just as much, too. I want to go home. So that's an example there. On the flip side, all of those attributes that I listed are the do nots. The ones who are engaging in great leaders are communicating. They're being transparent. They have qualitative and quantitative data to explain the crisis and the solution. They're focusing on trust, and trust is two dimensions. One, they're showing that they're competent to resolve the crisis, but secondly, that they lead with integrity and have an ethical background. In addition, these leaders are thinking strategic, and they're not thinking about the short term, just resolving the crisis, but the long term implications. So that would be an example of good behaviors there. In terms of developing those behaviors and competencies, your research emphasizes training and development opportunities within the HR function. How does an organization norm and codify these behaviors from the top-line leadership all the way to the front lines? You know, last year, the Starbucks example was a drastic example of that. Some of you may recall that Starbucks had an incident where two men were sitting in the Philadelphia Starbucks store, and they called the police because they thought that they were going to do some harm or some damage. And it started this whole Starbucks reaction about, okay, how do we create our customers? And do we have unconscious bias? And are there diversity issues? And Starbucks decided for one day to shut down all their restaurants, their franchisees, and have diversity training. So this is an example of, you know, organizational learning in real time for the entire organization to address a crisis. Now, some people were saying, oh, you know, this is just a front. This is just a media act. How are you going to impact thousands of Starbucks employees? And whether you think it's a front or deep learning or symbolic training, it still sends a message that we had a crisis. We care about it and we're going to learn as an organization. In our research, learning comes in many forms. Some of them are as drastic as the Starbucks one is shutting down an organization. But the real learning comes every day. It's not only in training, but thinking about what are those on-the-job opportunities to help your organizational members prepare and prevent crisis and have the skill set to lead in time. The other thing is it's important to think about how do we bring people together for personal learning and collective learning so that when they get in crisis situations, they know how to act. One of my favorite examples is the miracle on the Hudson River when the pilot had the opportunity to land the plane. And it's an example of that particular airline team that was prepared to lead in the crisis. The pilot who led that landing had an expertise in landing in crisis situations. He liked to do flight simulations as a hobby. But he was the first person, Pilot Scully, to talk about that it wasn't only his skill set, but it was the flight attendants and the Coast Guards that was on the day. And they had to work as a team. So when we talk about crisis learning and learning to really thrive in a crisis situation, we have to remember that it's on the personal level. Each of us have to be competent in our jobs, but it's also on the collective level. 
There's no other time in an organization life where the team's intelligence needs to be greater than the individual's. You mentioned the importance of diversity training, and I want to transition to the work you've done examining diversity management in organizations. When we have conversations about diversity, typically we talk about it through the lens of race, ethnicity, and gender. Some of your work has focused on diversity issues as they relate to employees with disabilities. Can you elaborate on your research on diversity in the context of disability? You know, that's a great topic. My initial research did look a lot at gender and racial diversity. And then I was approached by a law review journal to say, you have this great framework here. Would you apply it to discrimination of people who have disabilities in the workforce? And there's certain discriminations that we as a society try to ignore. And as you say, if you think about it, it's almost like an iceberg. There's some that are more salient and there are some that are under the iceberg and they become the elephant in the room. And one of them is discrimination against people who have disabilities. And what we've seen over time, and I'm hoping the pendulum's changed because that paper was published a while ago, is that organizations tend to ignore those discrimination suits. They hope that they go away or or they'll be in what I call denial mode. And so when we think about disabilities in the workplace, one, it's acknowledging that this is another form of diversity that we should be respecting. As leaders, we should be asking, are we creating inclusive environments so that people can show up as their best selves, including people who have disabilities? And so that's everything from the physical environment to how we manage and supervise them to create a culture that respects and values their contribution. Interestingly, in our research, what we found out is many times until these discrimination suits reach class action, they were actually ignored. People were like, oh, we're in denial. This is a one-off. I don't know why they want ADA accommodations. But when they had the pressure to reach class action is when you saw the behavior, okay, we need to change our workplace. We need to be more inclusive, making it so they're visually impaired or people that have learning or physical disabilities. And what I call for is going beyond that iceberg metaphor is that leaders who want to thrive at managing diversity have to say, okay, Who's in our organization? Who's included? Does everyone have a sense of belonging? And each organization has some bias for some ism. And so calling out what is that ism? It could be sexism. It could be sexual orientation. It could be racism. It could be social economic status. It might be professional title or disabilities. But being aware of, okay, where are, what's our weak point? Who are we discriminating against or not including? And then secondly, how do we rectify it? As an organization, how do we build bridges in the case of people who have disabilities so they feel included? Are we proactive in recruiting, making a culture and a space for them? And the kind of, I call it the ABC, so affirming the differences. The B is building the bridges so that everyone can thrive in the organization. And then the C is the organization cultivating capabilities around this so that the isms go away and we're included environment. And then the D is reminding the organizations that we have to have dialogue. What worked in 2000 may not work in 2020. Speaking of 2020, we happen to be approaching the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. How has the disability landscape changed in terms of what employers are conscious of, particularly with the shift in focus towards mental health? I do see a shift. And those of us in the trenches will probably argue that the shift has been slow. But I think we've made a lot of positive moves here in the last 30 years. Even if you look at the higher education landscape, which is a big source for employment, and you look at the employment landscape now, 
Most leaders are familiar with the American with Disability Act. They're thinking about how do we create environments. Um, it's a topic now. In 1990, it wasn't a topic. But now in the workplace, human resource departments have the skill set and the capabilities to adjust the physical environment. They have people who specialize in mental health and well-being. We're thinking about how do you bring people with learning disabilities into the workplace. So I like to be optimistic. I think in the last 30 years, we made a lot of advancements, but there's still room for improvement. I want to see, I said in a meeting last week where someone was just saying, you know, such and such profession, it makes it hard to do it when you have a disability. I don't want to hear that mindset anymore. I want to hear the mindset of not it's a difficulty, but how do we create a profession, whether it be medicine or being a police officer or a librarian so that everyone can succeed? I want to transition to the idea that diversity is a source of competitive advantage for organizations. Can you tell us more about this? So, you know, diversity is hard work. But when an organization does diversity well, it definitely results in a competitive advantage. You can look all around you. I was thinking about Disney and the different ways that Disney brings diversity to a table and how it results in a competitive advantage. And so... First, to acknowledge that we all bring differences and we have different identities. And because of those different identities, we look at the world differently. Our life experiences, the people that we interact with, our social identity preferences all influence it. And so the case becomes in the workplace, how do you use what my colleague Scott Page calls a diversity bonus to achieve those advantages? And organizations that do that, they were able to tap into the cognitive skill sets that are a function of really the different people in the workplace. And they not only tap into those skill sets, but once again, it goes back to my same thing. They have inclusive environments. And the inclusive environments take into account what's happening in the world. Last night, I was up late doing some work, and I happened to catch a clip of the movie Hidden Figures. And many of you may be familiar with Hidden Figures. It's the movie in the book about, really, African-American women who broke the mathematical perfection to work with NASA. Now, why is that a great example of diversity creating competitive advantage? If you think about the time in America when they were able to work at NASA, It was a time when the men were at war and there was a shortage of men and they were willing to hire women, not only women of European descent, but African-American women. And because they were able to bring these women in and think about the space program, you were able to showcase their mathematical genius. And so it's aligning with the environment and looking for talent and bringing that talent into your organization. It could be a marketing, a professional service firm, a nonprofit or government agency, and thinking about how that talent is going to give you a competitive advantage. Now, let's be realistic. Diversity, when you have differences of opinions, it takes a long time to do something. But good organizations know how to create practices and policies and procedures that bring people to the table and think about how do we take our diverse expertise and background and align it with our organizational goals. In the context of changing population demographics and a globalized economy, you've discussed how organizations need to be better able to recruit and support diverse talent. You've also had a specific focus on developing a diverse talent pipeline in higher education. Can you elaborate on this work? You know, one, it goes back to you have to have a strategic mindset. Two, um, one of my colleagues who's associate dean and engineering here, Mark Lewis, said, 
The second important ingredient is realizing that intelligence exists in multiple places, not only the same places. So looking for different places to find diverse people. What we have found is once you identify, okay, the pipeline and think outside the box and various places to recruit them, whether it be universities or affinity groups or um, through traditional mechanisms, it's providing them with a pathway to succeed. And research consistently says there's several factors for building a diverse pipeline of underrepresented people. It could be international people or gendered underrepresentation or disability. First, it's having mentors. Mentors are really important, mentors and coaches and sponsors, and they're very different. A mentor is someone who is going to walk along your career journey with you and give advice. The coach is a person who's going to have you take ownership for your career journey and ensure you're doing the right things, and such as a football coach or a basketball coach. But research also indicates that people from diverse backgrounds tend not to have sponsors, and sponsors are important. Sponsors are those people who, when you're not in the room, they're elevating you. They're saying, give you that next promotion, give you that chance to go work at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey. They see something in you, and they're sponsoring you for opportunities. So having what I call that whole personal board of directors, mentors, coaches, sponsors, great supervisors are all important. The next important thing about building a pipeline is in the ideal world, you want to have a critical mass of people so that people have what the Posse Foundation calls a family, a kinship network, affinity groups that they see people like themselves. It's very important. And then the next thing is being intentional about training development and the assignments that you give them. As you're trying to build a pipeline of diverse people, you just don't want to put them in the back office and saying, I'm hiring diverse, but giving them assignments that will elevate their career, that will stretch them, that will help them learn. And the formal training programs are important. What can organizations do to ensure equal access to sponsors? You know, that's a great question because we all have the tendency to want to sponsor people that look like us or that act like us, that like share like this. And so what I've seen is the best programs, one, have rigorous performance systems. And then they make sure that people in the room are not really, you don't want to really, someone will assign a mentor or sponsor, but you also want to make sure that people have a keen interest, that it's not forced to sponsor a mentorship. And so when I'm working with someone doing a performance review, or if it's a company doing a consulting job, I'm asking, okay, when you look at people from underrepresented backgrounds, do they have sponsors? Do they have mentors? Do we have a formal program? One possibility is do we have outside coaches that give us feedback? But it's really being intentional and formalizing the programs and ensuring that everyone has a sponsor or mentor. Even if you're going to fire someone and you want them to exit the company, you need a sponsor to help you think about your next career move. So it's just having a caring community. It's doing HR well, as you know from an ILR major. Which organizations have implemented sponsorship well? So my initial research started with the accounting firms, and they were really good when I initially started their research, um, in particular for women, where there were formal mentoring programs, their trainings, their conferences for each level that you go, that they're examples of. They're identifying people. And sometimes you can do group sponsoring or group membership mentoring. their programs. And so the accounting firms are one example that I've seen. I'm starting to see it in investment banks. 
in particular, especially as people move up the corporate ladder. Let's move to positive organizational scholarship, known as POS, which is a niche topic within organizational behavior that you've focused on in the past. Can you start by defining POS and explain the advantages of focusing on positively deviant behaviors? Positive organizational scholarship was founded at the Raw School of University of Michigan, and it was birthed out of the domain of positive psychology, but applied to the organizational level. And when we talk about positive organizational scholars and my colleagues around the world, it's a worldwide movement now, we're thinking about in organization life, what does excellence look like? What brings out the best in people? Why are certain teams high functioning? Why are certain organizations consistently able to make sure that they always meet their performance targets? So think of positive deviance this way is most of organization studies and psychology studies look at negative deviance, bad behavior and why organizations fail. Positive deviance is asking yourself, okay, we're a good organization, but consistently, what does it take to be great? So it's that constant cycle of going from good to great and adjusting various systems. One of my favorite companies that I studied even before I moved to Ithaca is Wegmans. And when you think about Wegmans, it exemplifies positive deviance. My own research looks at four areas of positive deviance. It uses what I call a competing value model, one of my papers. And one is, is okay, the collaborative C. Do we have good HR practices? And Wegmans has consistently voted one of the best companies to work for. They invest a lot of time and energy in creating effective human resource management systems because to be positive deviant, your people are your most important assets. And a grocery store like Wegmans realizes that. And so HR practices, recruiting, training, development, the work culture, the benefits and compensations. The next C is having good systems, those control systems, project management, inventory management systems, tracking systems, performance management systems. And if you've ever been in Wegmans, I was in Wegmans one Saturday, and it's like going to a huge football game when you go to Wegmans on Saturdays. And I looked up at the cash register, and there was a bulletin board, and it was tracking the time flow of how long it was taking the cashiers to get customers through the line. One of the best practices for control systems is what I call open book finances. It's everyone knowing the performance metrics and how we're achieving So you take a company like Wegmans, it might be sales, it might be inventory management turnover, it could be employee metrics, but everyone should know how the company's performance and tracking them. And this helps them contribute. So the second C is control. The third C is creative and innovation. So create. And Wegmans is a good example of that. They're always innovating. I was in a Syracuse store recently and their newest innovation was a burger bar. But lots of innovation, innovations through suppliers. If you go on Wegmans, I mean, you can get at Wegmans is every grocery store combined. It's Trader Joe's, it's Whole Foods, it's a super Walmart. They've innovated that particular way of making kind of mini stores within a large store. So the create C, they excel at. And then the final one is even if you're a nonprofit, you have to compete. How do you have a sustainable competitive advantage? And Wegmans has developed a formula equation where it can compete effectively because of its product differentiation, its customer service, its control systems, its creativity, all give it a competitive advantage that makes many difficult for other grocery stores to imitate. 
I was just talking to someone and a Wegmans is coming to their community and they're so excited. People get excited. And it goes back again. I think people are excited about Wegmans because they exemplify positive deviance. Which leaders come to mind that have exhibited positively deviant behaviors and allowed their organizations to differentiate as a result? The one that I, we talked about last week was in the crisis situation. I've been following the New Zealand president and how she has been leading through grace and helping the crisis. I'm trying to give a thought here. You know, positive deviance leadership comes in everyday leadership in many forms. And I'm going to give an off-the-beat example why I think of something corporate. Today I was watching the news. I was watching the Today Show. I've kind of watched the Today Show every day since I was seven. And I was looking at a young lady for her Girl Scout project who did something about girls having confidence. And her positive deviant leader started from an ideal where she noticed that girls don't raise their hands as much in class as their male counterparts do. And she wondered why. And she started talking to her parents about this incident about girls not raising their hands and not speaking up. And she created this whole Girl Scout project about raising your hands, getting girls to speak up. And she wrote a book about this girl speaking up. This is an example of a young lady who every day was thinking about, okay, how do I change the dynamics so that girls have a voice and feel comfortable speaking up? And it was a simple positive DV an act where her campaign is just asking girls to try to raise your hand twice as many times as you do and encourage other girls to raise their hand. And I was like, this is a young woman who's going to be a fabulous leader here. Moving back to the open book management piece and the hesitation to share financials with employees due to concerns that it won't be understood, what are some best practices companies can follow to share this information effectively? So the positive deviance organizations that I've studied treat business as a game. And they want all of their employees to understand the rules of the game. If I work for a company and don't understand the equation or the rules of the game, I can't help you be positive deviant. And so you have to decide, one, am I hiring people that I trust? What data do I want to share with them? If you're a public company, many of your data is public. But if you're a private company, the question becomes, okay, what do I want to share so that people can understand the games? And the more data and the more transparency you can share and get people to understand the business model inside and outside the firm, I believe leads to a competitive advantage. And so there are things, if you're doing something unique such as Wegmans, there are things no matter what other grocery stores do, they can't copy it anyway. Because your competitive advantage is not based on the numbers. It's based on your culture, your work practices, your organizational structure. The numbers are just the equations that explain how you're performing. So you're right. Lots of leaders like to hoard data. I'm the data person. I don't want to share it. But instead, good leaders try to be multipliers. They try to discover talent. They share data. They think about the resources that will empower people. I'd like to move on to some of your forthcoming research on the glass cliff. Can you walk us through this and how it manifests itself in executive hiring decisions? So the glass cliff is a theory that women and underrepresented minorities, when they are hired for leadership positions, they're just put in a bad situation. They're screwed. They're put in an organization or a team that's in crisis. And so think about envisioning this. Instead of the glass ceiling, they're set on a clip. And they're going to fall and they're going to fail on that clip. So there's a book coming out by Harvard Business School that looks at African-American leadership and African-Americans in work. 
And the chapter that I have coming out is about, okay, when you look at African-American CEOs, were they appointed to glass cliff roles? And so that is kind of the topic. And what we found out interesting is the answer is yes, but I want to put a caveat there. Maybe most CEO leadership in this day and age is about managing crisis and glass cliffs. Now, yes, the African-Americans and women have been appointed more in government and corporate settings, but leadership is just so crisis-ridden these days that it becomes more salient because board of directors and government agencies, when women and minorities are appointed, not willing to give them as much time to resolve the glass cliff. So two points our research found is, one is, is that Most CEOs have to be in the business of leading some type of crisis situation. But if you're a woman or underrepresented minority, that role tends to be more important. So what does that mean? That means, one, um, what we saw is when you were an internal candidate, you were more prepared for it. So if you were the chief operating officer and you became CEO, or if you were on the board of directors, you had an insider knowledge about preparing for that crisis situation. But external candidates sometimes did not have as much preparation, but they were hired because of their industry expertise. However, the problem became, even though you're bringing in industry expertise, you don't have the internal social capital. So what did we learn from our research? One, that most CEOs are in the business of crisis leadership. As I said, two, women and underrepresented minorities are expected to manage crisis. Three, you need a skill set that combines kind of strategic thinking, the ability to learn quickly, and to manage the inside and the outside of the organization. Can you provide some examples of CEOs that fell into the glass cliff trap? (laughs) The one I think about example is is that McDonald's had an African-American CEO. He actually had some time inside the company and was considered an insider, but had a very short tenure. And when you look at the analysis of it, he was in a glass cliff situation because of the ecosystem of fast food. They wanted quick turnaround and profits and positioning, but McDonald's is competing against Chipotle and Chick-fil-A, one, and the healthy food nation now. And secondly, just really the stress and the struggles of competition And the healthy food made it a difficult situation for him. So that was an example McDonald's CEO. You saw it also with JCPenney's. They expected a a quick turnaround. This is a person who brought industry knowledge from retail. And so these are two companies, JCPenney's and McDonald's, where the industry dynamics kind of make the organization in a smoldering crisis. And the board did not think the CEO could turn around the company quick enough. And so when there are underrepresented minority candidates that are up for these um, executive positions, how can they weigh whether to accept an executive role in these situations? Does it become a high risk, high reward proposition? Great lead into that question. You have to ask yourself, am I willing to take the risk? You know, will it have a good reward to it? And will I learn from it? And in particular, I think many of the CEOs in our study It was high risk, high rewards, but it also positioned them for their next role. Your research in this area has focused on Fortune 500 CEOs, but you also look at other professional contexts, such as African-American head coaches in the NFL. Do you expect the glass cliff effect to extrapolate across organizational settings? Oh, I definitely see it. I see it in nonprofits. I see it in higher ed. I see it in government. I see it in sports organizations. And what I'm starting to ask myself is, okay, Why is it that women and underrepresented minorities such as African-Americans are hired for these positions? 
Do they have a stakeholder group that's going to support them and see them through the crisis or do they turn their back quickly? And that's going to be really important and require some longitudinal research. But yeah, you see it in coaches and you say, are these are they the only people left who are going to take the job? Are they more risky at taking the job? But what can we learn from this? And we need a community that supports people so that they can see and turn around the glass cliff situation. So when discussing the glass cliff, is there a longevity piece associated that could help set up candidates? You know, if I was coaching a candidate and I say candidates in that C-suite level, women and underrepresented minorities, you're going to have jobs that are glass cliff like all of us are going to have jobs as part of when you reach a certain level. And you have to ask yourself, there are two types of longevities to think of. One is, can I stay at this organization long? Will I have the support that I need to get us out of this glass cliff, this crisis situation? And so the first type of longevity is staying at the organization long enough. You know, you look at great women CEOs like Indra Noye of PepsiCo and the board and her C-suite giving her the time to do what she could do for the tenure of her CEO-ship. The other question you can ask yourself is, okay, this is a high-risk, high-reward system. I'm going to get here for two to three years, do my best to turn around this glass cliff situation, and then set myself up for the next role. So any CEO or upper echelon leadership situation, I often tell people you have to think twofold. How long do I want to stay in the organization? Can I manage the glass cliff and be successful? And is it going to launch me to my next career or the next phase of my life? Is there anything else on the glass cliff topic that you'd like to share that we haven't had a chance to cover? I think it's important for board of directors in particular when you get to the C-suite and other leaders in the C-suite to be aware of this glass cliff problem and to ensure that they're honest about it, they're having crucial conversations, and they're developing support systems. And much of my research you might have noticed, especially as it relates to diversity, if you do the right thing for everybody, what I call universal design, Everybody will benefit. So no matter if it's a white male CEO who's experienced a glass cliff or an Asian-American woman. So the thing is doing the right thing and having the support mechanisms. I'd like to circle back to positively deviant leaders again and just to discuss some additional examples of positively deviant leaders. And I know that you've written about Steve Jobs and how he exemplified positive deviant leadership. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. And, you know, Steve Jobs is an interesting one because every leader has good things they did and they have not good so things. So sometimes you'll read about Steve Jobs and you realize that he might have been difficult to work with. But my own research on Steve Jobs in particular focused on that fourth C. And that fourth C is a competitive advantage. How are you positive deviant about competing? And there are several leadership behaviors that Steve Jobs did. He was resilient. Steve Jobs talked about his failure, but every time he failed, he was willing to get up. And so his positive deviance around a competitive advantage circled on developing a core competency for innovation. He took Apple's divine skills and thought about, okay, how do we think about our design capabilities and our technology capabilities and launch it in a constellation of products. This is a great example. Things about the iPhone, the computer laptop, all of those designs, the iPad that go along with Apple. He made Apple cool, hip, divine, and easy technology to use. And he created an ecosystem so that there are competitive advantages and it's difficult to imitate. 
Today, I don't know if you heard, but Apple has decided that they want to compete with Hula and Netflix. Once again, it's that core competency of its user base, innovation, technology, ease of use, and scale that it's succeeding. And so it's innovation, it's creative and competing where their positive deviant behavior is. Earlier, you mentioned the importance of resiliency in an organization. How does an organization build resiliency so that when major disruptions do occur, they're best positioned to respond effectively? So as you know, my favorite word is the L word, but I'm going to go beyond learning this time. It's, it's, so it's not only learning. If you recall, I said it's learning at the personal level, investing and learning at the team level, but it's also scanning the environment for opportunities. Resilience people know what's happening in their environment. They're looking inside. They're looking outside. They're looking forward. They're looking backward. I like to say like the guy Janice. They're thinking about, okay, what did history tell us? What can we learn from history and how we prepare for the future? You know, Apple has had to change quickly. There was a time when Steve Jobs said, you know, people want to own their own music. Well, nobody cares about owning their own music anymore. We want to be in a cloud-based world. And so changing quickly are important. And then believing that opportunities will exist. If you're adaptable, if you have learning agility, you're going to be resilient when you think about, okay, what is the opportunity in the crisis situation? How can I make sure I'm a better organization? The classic one that's, you know, dated years ago is how Johnson & Johnson turned around the opportunity when the Tylenol canisters were being tampered. They made it safe so that people, no one can tamper products now. There are lots of times where companies are able to be resilient because they see the crisis as an opportunity to be better. So in other words, resilient organizations are not falling victim to market myopia. They're not falling victim to market myopia. Um, During the last recession, one of the examples I write about is Ford's resilience. Ford was looking inside and outside, and they started to think, hmm, the economy is going to take a downturn. And what Ford was able to do is they divested a product line such as Volvo and Jaguar so that they could have the cash to be ready for the recession. Ford is another company that has reinvented itself now and realizing that most consumers want SUVs. And so they've made SUVs their core competency. So resilience is thinking strategically and creatively. Continuing on the topic of reinvention in times of crisis, one of my favorite examples is Martha Stewart and how she responded in the face of an insider trading scandal. I love Martha Stewart, okay? I'm going to be honest up front. In fact, I didn't think I wanted to be a business school professor. I wanted to be the next African Martha Stewart. But I ended up as a business school professor. That's a detour. But Martha Stewart is a great example, again, of, in similar ways, if you think about her competitive advantage, it was she made a product out of home economics through her magazines, books, TV shows, radio, her merchandising. She had contracts with stores such as Macy's. And then all of a sudden, Martha had to go to jail for insider trading. But she is the comeback kid for resilience, reinventing herself from the time she got out of jail, having her PR machine. Even when she was in jail, marketing and messaging about what life like was in jail and creating community service projects. And she's come back now. And part of it is her brand is so strong. Secondly, her portfolio of businesses and aligning them with the environment of consumers wanting product, these home economics, domestic products. And so her comeback has been based on PR, adapting to technology, using everything from website and kind of downsizing traditional publications and thinking strategically about her partners. I mean, who would have thought 15 years ago that Martha Stewart was partnering with Snoop Dogg? 
And now she has this web of partners. Awesome. Well, Dean Wooden, thank you for joining us today. It was great speaking with you. I really enjoyed our conversation and appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us here at Present Value. It was an honor. And when I think about um, this, this podcast here, it does remind me that Leadership shows up in a lot of forms, and we all have an opportunity every day when we wake up to be positive, deviant leaders. And so when I think about the leadership stage, and it doesn't matter where you're on that stage, but if it's a crisis situation, if there's opportunity to welcome a diverse group or someone for disabilities, or if it's thinking about positive deviance, what this requires is that we bring our strengths and our best selves that we create a community and a team of people who want to thrive with us, and we invest in organizational learning. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Caroline Wright, Serena Alavia, Bernardo Espinoza, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tint. I'm your host for this episode, James Fell. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.